Good morning. Um, I believe this is day 104. If it's not, I'll go back and um, change it, you know, later. I haven't done one of these in a couple of days, so it just feels like so much fun right already. Um, I decided, I think I want to go through Galatians because I'm, I'm really wanting to kind of dig into this issue of freedom and this kind of, um, just the, the huge gap and contradiction that we have with religion because it's so profoundly pervasive and in terms of, you know, just um, a generation that has been raised in the law and death and raised in religion and not in encounter. So we haven't had a very encounter-based kind of um, culture in many places in Christendom in this country and so in many places we have but um, for the most part you know kind of looking at a generation that I've been with for you know I don't know how many 20 some odd years or so but like particularly as a Bible teacher in a public school um, that's been you know 10 years of looking at some of the same things over and over again you know seeing very common themes emerge and what you have is a church kid generation who they don't see a lot of relevance between the Bible and their lives. And they don't, they're intrigued and enthralled with supernatural, but have very little experience in terms of supernatural in the kingdom of heaven. And they haven't really been um, brought up in a habitation environment, you know, this very prophetic, intercessory kind of uh, habitation of Holy Spirit, habitation of glory, but rather they've been brought up in a very heady religion where they've been, where many of them just feel like I hear it all every year in the journals, you know, they've just been preached at and preached at, but I don't hear encounter. And then I see how equally powerful the struggles are with believers and non, they're the same. They're struggling with all the same things with the same intensity. And there's something that should mark a generation that is um, living and having, moving and having our being in the Holy Spirit. There's something that should mark this generation differently that makes them stand out. Kind of like, you know, when Moses said, I heard this yesterday at church, so I'm saying it too, but this quote, um, essentially, if you don't go with us, we're not going. And he so desired to have something that so radically set the generation apart that they were leading out of the wilderness, you know, and out of captivity in Egypt, right? He wanted something that, that literally would set them apart because everybody around us needs to know who our God is. And so there were signs, wonders, and miracles all happened in the desert. And the same thing happened later, many years later, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. And so, because we've kind of lost, we've done a lot of proclaiming, we haven't done a lot of demonstrating in a lot of places, so we have a generation that has not been immersed in a lot of kingdom reality. You know, in terms of just encountering Holy Spirit, healing, prophetic, um, just everything that's on the palate for a generation to walk in great power and to walk as a habitation of revival. And so because of that gap, they don't see, like I said, a ton of relevance to the Bible in everyday life because they've seen and heard knowledge, but they haven't had it married to an encounter in their heart 
which comes through habitation and comes through being in, in a, an environment where we are consistently evoking the presence of Jesus. Holy Spirit is here doing what he does. And so I think the primary piece that I, one of the primary pieces that I see that God is tearing down in this, in this era is every altar to religion is going to topple. And the church is going through a transfiguration of its own. That there is no, there is no more doing business as usual. Nobody even wants that. It will be driven by revelation and by raw hunger and a hunger for God to see his face and to encounter him. And, and we will move, live, and have our being in the Holy Spirit. We will pull down the agenda of heaven as fresh manna and bread and revelation as a prophetic intercessory body who is connected to each other. And so it looks radically different. You know, everything that we've built as an edifice to religion is just like, you know, um, we see the evidence of it everywhere. And we've had a generation that's been raised in that house, in the older son's house, in the prodigal son story. So I'm going to do a thing on Galatians. I'm going to start with Galatians 1. I'm going to read it from the message. I study a bunch of different versions. Sometimes I just need something that's a little bit different to kind of catch me out of the way. So I might talk about it from different versions. But this one, I'm going to start like in verse 6 in Galatians 1. Galatians 1. He said... I actually go back to the top. I, Paul, and my companions here in faith, starting at verse 1, and greetings to the Galatian churches. My authority for writing to you does not come from any popular vote of the people, nor does it come through an appointment of some human higher up. It comes directly from Jesus the Messiah and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Um, I am I'm God commissioned. That's where Paul gets his authority from. It's not because he's been ordained. It's not because he has special credentials. It's because literally he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself. He said, we know the meaning of those words because Jesus Christ rescued us from this evil world we're in by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. God's plan is that we all experience that rescue. Glory to God forever. Oh, yes. He says, I can't believe how you waver, how easily you've turned traitor to him who called you by grace of Christ by embracing an alternative, alternative message. It is not a minor variation, you know. It's a completely other, an alien message, a no message, a lie about God. Those who are provoking this agitation among you are turning the message of Christ on its head. I love this. Let me be blunt, right? If one of us, even an angel from heaven, were to preach something other than what we preached originally, let him be cursed. applause 
If my goal was popularity, I wouldn't bother being slave, Christ's slave, right? Know this, I am most emphatic here, friends. This great message I delivered to you is not mere human optimism. I didn't receive it through the traditions, right? No religion. I wasn't taught in some school. He didn't go to cemetery. I got it straight from God. Received the message directly from Jesus Christ. I'm sure that you've heard the story of my earlier life when I lived in the Jewish way. In those days, I went all out in persecuting God's church. I was systematically destroying it. I was so enthusiastic about the traditions of my ancestors that I advanced a head and shoulders above my peers, <laughs> right? Even then, God had his eye on me. Why? When I was still in my mother's womb, he chose and called me out of sheer generosity. Now he has intervened and revealed his son to me that I might, full, might joyfully tell non-Jews, Greeks, about him. Immediately after my calling, without consulting anyone around me, and without going up to Jerusalem to confer with those who were apostles along, along before I was, I got away to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus with Peter, and I was there only 15 days, but what days they were. Except for our master, Brothers James, I saw no other apostles. Then I began my ministry in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia, sorry. And after that activity, I was still known by, unknown by face among Christian churches in Judea. There was only this report that man was once persecuted, now is preaching the very message he used to destroy. Their response was to recognize and worship God because of me. Wow. All right, I'm going to get to this part. Let's see. All right, so I want to go down to um, verse 11 in chapter 2. He said, later, when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face -face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. Here's the situation. Earlier, before certain persons had become, had come from James, Peter, persons that come from James, Peter regularly ate with the non-Jews. So they were eating with the Greeks, right? But, that was that, but when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of the conservative Jewish clique that had been pushing the old system of circumcision. I think one of the things he highlights here that I really like is that the system of law, because these guys came in and they were preaching the law and that we had to maintain and keep the law, Peter got afraid. But the only thing that the law could ever produce is fear. It only produces fear and death. And so I think that's one of the keys to unraveling this religious system that we've built is understanding that the law only produces death. And everyone that tries to manage their life under the law, it never, ever works. I love the way David Hogan says it. It's like he'll be like, how's that working for you? 
Let me read on. He says, Okay, um, that's how fearful that he was of the conservative Jewish clique that had been pushing the old system of circumcision. When the law comes in like a flood, the only thing we have is fear. And fear can only create one response, and that is compliance. It will never create passion. Fear makes us want to behave because it agrees with our shame that there's something wrong with us to begin with. And the enemy uses that fear to fuel religion because we want to somehow live independently from God and we, our nature and we, and we believe the lie that is propagated that we are somehow separate from him and we're not. But when I saw that they were not maintaining a steady, straight course, according, um, okay, good. All right. I spoke up to Peter in front of them all. If you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs from Jerusalem, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem buddies? We Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners, right? We know very well that we are set right with God, not set right rather by God, by rule keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? We tried it. We had the best system of rules the world had ever seen. Convinced that no human being can place, please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah, right? So that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. That version says it so well there. I feel like that is one of the major tension points in the church. Because we're afraid. What are we afraid of? Because that's always my question in that is like, okay, so what are we really afraid of if we don't give the generation the law to keep them in line? You know, William Golding, who wrote Lord of the Flies, he didn't have a Judeo-Christian worldview. His view of man after seeing the Holocaust and after seeing um, World War II was that essentially that man was evil and, and that if you left us to our own devices, we would migrate to that very common denominator place of evil. If you leave us to our own, we will become like the kids on that island who burn it down and hunt each other down and try to kill each other. And they, they are totally reckless, lawless, no, nothing good in them to drive anything, the moral compass in any other direction. And so his view came out of a place of seeing the very worst that he had seen in humanity. But I don't know that in the church that we're a whole lot different because the basic belief about the, when, you, when you embrace the law and you're looking to death and law to be your tutor and your guide and the thing that brings you to life, that, that protects you, does whatever, then you essentially believe that we are evil by nature and we must be reined in somehow. That apart from the law, we could never find righteousness on our own, which is the absolute antithesis of the gospel. And that's why Paul's going off here. The gospel, look, I love it when he says, you know, um, 
we tried it, right? Have some of you noticed, he says, that we are not yet perfect. No great surprise, right? And you are ready to make the accusation that sends people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous. Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin. The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a pretender. The concept that we are made righteous by faith alone is a, an affront to most of humanity, right? It, it literally wrecks us and messes with our mind. It's offensive as all get out. Sorry about the little walk. <laughs> you know, it's profoundly offensive, right? Because, and it's the thing that, that, that the Pharisees, the church, we are so offended with this idea that by faith alone in Jesus Christ, I am holy, I am righteous, I am a new creation. And what does that mean? And I'm going to talk more at, about it when we get into um, um, Galatians further. But he says, here's what actually took place. I tried keeping the rules and working my head off to please God. How many people have done that, been there? How many people have gotten totally exhausted and trying to do the right thing, try to manage all our addiction, to, to try to manage our life? And so I, I think it's interesting that it doesn't take us long after we get saved to figure out that we can't do it on our own and that everything we do in our attempt to manage ourselves always ends in the same thing. We lie down in torment. It's what Isaiah said when he said, look, if you try to walk by the light of your own fire, here's what you're going to have. You're going to lie down in torment. When we try to walk in our own strength and we try to be that righteous person and we let religion begin to shape us in that way, we end up in torment. You know, you look at the things that are going on in the baptismal pools in Georgia, at Remnant, the whole baptism revival. Look at what's happening in that water. Every person that comes to the water is saying, I can't do this. Every one of them. Why are we desperate and hungry for God? What drives our desperation? What drives our hunger for God? It's usually because we are tired out of trying to figure it out on our own. We've tried everything and all of our do's and don'ts and rules, my reading program, my praying harder to get rid of my addiction, my self-help group, my accountability group, go on and on and on, right? None of those things have worked. The enemy loves to connect and tether himself to our shame where we believe that there's something intrinsically wrong with us because he can keep us tethered to the law. He can keep us tethered to striving instead of receiving. <clears throat> All we were ever supposed to do is by faith receive what Jesus had done. In every attempt that we make to nail ourselves to that cross, it never works. It is always an exercise in futility. A presence-oriented creature who is made to live in union and in presence 
and connected to heaven cannot leave that presence to come over here to work out our salvation. Right? He says, I kept trying to keep the rules, working my head off to please God, but it, it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. There is something really key in this one for where we are headed in this era of continuous revival and habitation of Holy Spirit. We are going to have to completely leave the law and every religious structure internally and scaffolding that we have built. We're going to have to come off of that scaffolding and those rails into extremely unfamiliar territory because it's the only place where we can live by faith. We cannot live by faith and live by the law at the same time. They are absolutely antithetical. And so our hunger and our passion, the thing that is driving people to those baptismal waters in Dawsonville and Remnant in Brunswick and every other place around the nation where that's been happening is a desire for more of God, for you to do something in me that I can't do. I've exhausted every single attempt at righteousness and I've failed. So we need, we desperately need for God to do what he wants to do in us. And so he says, he says, Christ life showed me how and enabled me to do it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. Right. Law is always self-centered and self-focused. And what I've noticed for me, even in my own life, when I'm trying really desperately to work stuff out in my own flesh, and I berate myself because I fell here, or I did this, or I sinned there, etc. And I, I get involved in that, I, in the accusation of the enemy, I kind of partner with it, and I beat myself up. You know, usually we do that for a couple of reasons. One, because we have a lot of self-contempt. And, or two, we just need to forgive ourselves. And we need to let go of some things that we've engaged in, even in the past. Leanne Payne says there are basically three barriers to personal wholeness. One is the failure to forgive others, to forgive ourselves, and to accept oneself. Self-contempt and acceptance can't live in the same house. And so when I'm, when I'm riddled in self-contempt, then I have a need to punish. My need, when I, when I, when we've experienced rejection and et cetera, right? We tend to, that's where shame comes in and that's where we believe that there's something wrong with us that we're not lovable. Okay. Other centered contempt, meaning every projection of, of hatred that I put on another is really about me. All contempt is actually self-centered. Look at the rape of Tamar. Amnon rapes his sister, right? He projects his shame onto her and his hatred onto her and sends her away. Who does he really hate? Himself. Who did Cain really hate? Himself. And so when, when we, we have that kind of self-contempt, we're in easy agreement with the enemy to believe that there is nothing that, to believe that we are incapable, that we're, that we're wrong, that we're just basically 
flawed beyond all repair, that there's nothing good in us. And the truth is, it tethers us to the law in a way that makes us want to try to earn it in a way that we in a way that we cannot. It keeps us on that treadmill of trying to earn love in ways that we can't. He says, I want to read this last part again. He says, I, um, my ego is no longer central. That's where I was going. I just lost my spot for a second. Okay. We are inherently self-centered and it becomes all about us when we attempt to keep the law. Not keeping the law is about Jesus. Keeping the law is about me. It's not about Jesus. When we keep the law, we fail to be centered on Jesus and we are centered on self. Here's why. Because if you're living in a place of, with, with self-contempt and you find a need to punish yourself and embrace the lie that you are separate from God, my question is, what's that doing for you and why do you have that need? Why do I feel, what are you getting out of it? What are you getting out of crucifying yourself again? What are you getting out of the need to punish? Because it's really about your need to feel punished than it is about anything else. So therefore, we have no excuse when it comes to letting go of past failure, <clears throat> self-contempt, all of it. In order to receive love God's love, we have to love ourselves rightly. We have to see ourselves as he sees us and love ourselves as he loves us. Out of that place, we can love others. That's one of the biggest issues that I think God's trying to get at in the heart is we can only freely give away that which we've received. If self-contempt, hatred of self, or unforgiveness towards self or others is the block, then the block to love is the thing that we end up not being able to get. And we will migrate in the absence of love, we will migrate towards fear and law. When love in reality is the only thing that can transform a heart. So the enemy's biggest investment in self-contempt and shame is to keep us from love, keep us from receiving love, keep us from loving ourselves rightly and to keep us from being conduits of love. If we could be a slave to law and fear and bound and not love, then he wins. But God is not law and death. He is love. <clears throat> and I'll end with that part there about it being um, self-centered. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have a good opinion. I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine, but it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going back on that. We are really terrified of grace and we want to keep people tethered to the law because we're afraid that if they're given too much grace, God forbid, that they would what? That's where the whole fear of this whole thing about hyper grace, we're afraid they're just going to run off and, and use grace as an excuse. 
What about being interrupted by love? Why aren't we? I am more confident that when love encounters someone, that love will draw them into relationship. Love creates passion. The law creates compliance. Jesus isn't looking for compliant robots. He wants lovers. Why are we so afraid of, of extending grace and drawing people into love? Because if our fear is that they're just going to use this as an excuse to send more, we need to really relook at the whole thing that we're after here. If love captured you, why don't I believe it could capture someone else? If love captured your heart and motivated you, it's the love of Christ that compels us. If it's compelling you, why would you want to put the law on somebody else? The only true motivator, the only thing that can change a heart is a heart that has encountered love, not law. And the more that we bring people into love, they will come into the place of loving love and loving the romance of heaven more than the destruction of sin and death and law. Our job is to bring them into love. Let Jesus transform the heart. If you, we give them love and we show them what love looks like, they will become lovers and they will become holy and righteous as they behold the one, as they manifest rather the one that they're beholding. If you behold the law, you'll manifest it. If you behold death, you'll manifest it. Let's, I want to manifest love. And I want to be unafraid of grace drunk straight. Let's just drink grace, grace straight. No ice, no water in the glass. Let's drink grace straight in Jesus' name.